0: Um, If you have been with us for a while, you will know that we have been in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, and if you'd like to, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 right now. What I'd like to do is actually highlight some um, themes that have been going on throughout the book of Hebrews up to this point and help us understand um, a framework, um, something to kind of sit into as we, we deal with the text today. One of the major things that we have seen in the book of Hebrews and just preached and reiterated and said again and rephrased is this whole issue of, hey, this is going to be a really rough paraphrase. Hey, brothers and sisters, do not turn away from your God because that is dumb. Do not turn away from this amazing God, because that would be foolish, even though you are in the midst of difficulty, even though you are in the midst of persecution. Now, I just want to show you that very briefly in chapter 10. I'm just going to read it. You you can look at it, chapter 10, verse 32, and I'll read on. He says this, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do you see it? For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I'll stop there. And so what the author has been saying, I know that you are going through intense hardship and persecution, but do, do not walk away from this amazing God. Now, he's not saying that God does not persevere his saints, but he's giving them a real warning. He's not saying it in such a way that they should be fearful and tremble, but he's given an honest warning. of. Don't don't leave the flock of God. Don't run when when you're facing these difficult trials. Now, going back to the early parts of of the book, leading up to this point, there are a few major comparisons and contrasts going on with Jesus and these other ideas that the people of God had a deep familiarity with, okay? And perhaps you do, or perhaps maybe you don't. And the way that you actually will get more familiar will not be within a sermon series, perhaps, or not even with one sermon, most definitely, but through the reading of the first five books of the Bible. You see, the author of Hebrew, Hebrews has this amazing, this big assumption that everyone listening, everyone reading, actually understands to some extent, or a rather extensive extent, the, the Abraham and becoming a nation, and Moses and Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, They have a great understanding of the tabernacle and the priests and sacrifice, and also the wilderness and the wanderings. He is assuming that they know a lot of detail about all of those things. Now, as he starts to unfold the the book all the way to chapter ten, chapters 1 through 3, Jesus basically is pointed out as being superior to angels. And what comes along with that is a great warning. He says, warning, hey, look, Israel needed to pay attention to God. How much more for us? And then the next section between three of the end of three and four, he makes this great comparison and superiority or points out the superiority of Jesus over Moses and the promised land. Jesus is the leader and he's a better tent. He's not just a tent. He is actually about a new creation. If Israel if the true Israel is, is Jesus and Moses how, if Moses was great, how much Greater are the stakes with uh, following after Jesus instead of the promised land to Moses. Why would you rebel and miss out on this amazing new creation that God has made? The third warning that happens and the comparison starts with Jesus being superior to the priest's and uh, this order of Melchizedek, this materi- mysterious Melchizedek that we talked about, and, and what they would understand was, wait, the priesthood was flawed because they were hu- very human people that made very real mistakes and they had to offer sacrifices over and over, and they would die, and there would have to be more priests that would be born in order to do this to, to ward off the, f- the wrath of God during that time. And what he says is, is this, that, that Jesus, that the, the other fl- pr- the priests are flawed, but there is something greater needed, and Jesus is it. Now, to reject Jesus is to reject God's best. That's the third warning that comes out. Now, there's a fourth warning that comes out uh, between chapters eight through ten. And first, he starts with the contrast once again that Jesus is better than the the sacrifices and the covenants. In fact, he has a new covenant. Jesus' sacrifice is better than all the others his life has, was sacrificed as a once-for-all event It is done, and to walk away from this great permanent sacrifice. Why would you walk away from this great and permanent sacrifice offered by God? That is crazy. And that is essentially what he has been arguing and saying for, for weeks and weeks and weeks throughout the text leading up to this point. So they are facing these great difficulties. Brothers and sisters, I know there are times that you probably are not facing those types of persecutions right now. It's a good day to live where we live. However, I also know that you face great difficulties and struggles in this life and hardships. Can you imagine, perhaps, if you will, the Christians who have lost their homes to the plundering of the fire or lost loved ones, and perhaps are crying out to God, oh God, why? Oh God, help me. Could you imagine the pain and the struggle? Can you imagine for a moment those that have lost friends and family so young, um, college-age students at that little dance place uh, where there was the, murder, the multi-murder that took place? Maybe perhaps crying out to God, friends and friends of friends. Lord, maybe even saying, God, I trust you, I know you, but I'm in such deep hurt right now and i i just don't get it god and i am hurting and what the scriptures say to us is to not not to reject him but instead to draw near to god who has done something amazing so now today what we're going to do is we are going to highlight so in light of that framework we are going to look at um how we can deal with this 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 difficulty What do we do when persecutions and difficulties hit our life? What we do is we actually turn to Jesus and reflect on who he is and what he has done. It's a simple message. This morning what you will see is who he is and what he has done. There are a few things I'll point out. We'll start with the very first. Who he is and what he has done in light of dealing with these, these difficulties that, face our, that we face in our lives, one of the first things we will see is this, that who, in light of who Jesus is, Christ is the real and makes us perfect, while the law is a shadow of a better reality, namely Jesus. It may sound kind of strange to hear that Jesus is the real but let me explain it this way. Some of you remember uh, The Matrix so y- years ago, that old movie from the 60s, 1999, where there was nothing like it, where Neo is in the presence of, of uh, I can't even remember, another actor, wow. who's Morpheus. Thank you very much. Now we know who's seen the movie. And he gives him this opportunity to take the red pill, or the blue pill. If he takes one pill, he actually goes down the rabbit hole and he is going to see something that he can't quite explained to him, and that is not quite believable. He has to take something and just buy, and trust that this is going to lead him to something good. He could take the other pill, and then he goes back to sleep and forgets everything. And so what happens, what happens is, is that he finds out that his reality was actually not reality at all, but the real was something, you know, it was a hard place to be, but it was something radically different. It wasn't just a dreamland. Now, here's the thing. When we look at the law and compare it to who Christ is, what we see is that he is the real. I'm going to show you the text, and then I'll explain this. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says this. For since the law has but a shadow, do you see that? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never be the same sacrifice. And I want to stop and go back. And that's kind of an odd thing to start with at first when you see this. See, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. What the author is going to point out is that Jesus and what, who he is, is is the reality. And the law was just a shadow. The law and the sacrificial system and all that was just a shadow. Now, Calvin talks about it this way, and I think he talk, talks about it in a very clear way. So, you see, in his, in his day, they had these people called painters. You've probably heard of them. And a lot of times, painters will sketch out something and draw, like, kind of the bones before they would actually add the color and layer the paint. And what Calvin points out, what the text points out, is that, that, that those drawings are only shadows of the better reality It's not the full expression until the paint and the color hits the canvas. Now here, what's happening in real time is that the author has pointed us out that the real is Christ. The law was just a shadow of something greater. Now he's said this over and over and over throughout the book. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, namely Jesus, of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, uh, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not going to make perfect those that would draw near to worship God. We know that. We have heard that repeatedly. Now, it, wasn't, it isn't that the author is saying that that is a waste. It is not that the author is saying that the law is bad either. The scriptures point out quite the opposite. That the law is good. The law is from God. But it was not meant to totally cleanse your conscience. It was Christ to come that would cleanse our consciences. This was a shadow of God revealing of what he was going to do and was going to take place later. But in addition, while they were doing these sacrifices and the sacrificial system, it was a season of warding off of the, the wrath of God to come. You see, and they were seeing their need for there to be life taken, namely Jesus. But it was to come. And these things were shadows of the real Otherwise, would they not, in verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, why would they keep doing the sacrifices if they would be cleansed? And the author is pointing out very simply that there would be no need. Now what we are going to see from the text and what we have seen from the text is that Jesus in his once for all death on the cross has wiped away sin. He has covered it by his blood and that is good news. But what he's pointing out, Jesus is the real. And it says this in verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin sins and that is really the point the old the shadow it is impossible for those to take away sins it has to be the lamb of god jesus christ brothers and sisters since you know him if you put your trust in him that your sins are washed away and this is a beautiful and wonderful thing this helps us know who jesus is he is the one who is the real and the law is a shadow of the reality so he is the real the one who actually makes us perfect and takes away our sin that is number one now here's the thing Now, that is true, and we know something about who Christ is, that he is actually the one that can actually cleanse our consciousness. He is the one that can wipe away our sins, but we do not always live and think like that is true. Do you follow me? We know that that is true, but we do not always think and believe it is true by our actions, by our hearts, by the way we think about things. Why is it? Let's just uncover that just a little bit. One of the reasons why we have a hard time believing that very true thing is that we sometimes think more of our sin than we ought to. We think, maybe I'm just a weirdo, that no one has sinned as bad as I have. How is it possible that God would cleanse me of my sin? Or we think of it outwardly, differently, in a different sense. We look at other people and say, I cannot believe the things that they have done. I would never do those things that they have done. But brothers and sisters, when we look at who Jesus is, that he is the one, he is the real, he is the one that can perfect and cleanse us, then why would we think any other way? So that's the first thing that I want us to to wrestle with. Number two. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is the, this is related to the what Jesus has done. There's the who Jesus is, but this is the what he has done. Number two is that Christ did the will of the Father as a once and all offering to sanctify us. Now, sanctifying is about making us holy and making us pure with God. Christ did the will of the Father as a once-for-all offering. We read on in verse 5 and on. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, pause for a moment and look at what the author is doing. He is quoting this Old Testament passage. It's this really odd thing that happens. And the author of Hebrews does this a lot. But I want to take some time to just address this and and have you think through it just a bit. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body um, have you prepared for me. Did you notice the very first thing he says in verse 5 is consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, isn't that odd in light of the fact that this comes from Psalm, like Psalm, in the book of Psalms? And that the author is saying Christ said. One of the beautiful realities that we are seeing is we are seeing how to see Christ in light of the Bible overall. He is revealing the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word. And so if to read those scriptures, old and new, is to read the words of Jesus. If we know who he is, that he is Jesus, how can we deny the fact that he would cleanse us of our sins? Anyway, we go on. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, it says, but a body have you prepared for me, In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. There it is. As it is written of of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by the will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, uh, which can never take away sins. What he is pointing out is the daily sacrifice that the priests would do. They would come and stand, and it it would not take away sins. But Jesus is the one that actually does it, and he is doing the will of the Father. Now, when we see what he says here early as he's quoting this psalm, it might be easy to think, well, man, God just, just detests these offerings. And yet, isn't it odd that God required it? God did require it. And they were to obey and do this. It doesn't mean that he detests it. It means that what the author is telling us is that it would not save us. It had to be Jesus. Sacrifice is an offering you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, um, I have come to do your will, O God. In other words, Jesus has come to do the will of the Father, being the offering that was going to sanctify us. Did you know, brothers and sisters, you are sanctified by God? Do you know what he did? Jesus did the will of the Father, and it is the only thing that can sanctify us. His once-for-all work is accomplished for us. Now here's the struggle uh, that we have when we think about this truth and experience this truth at times, perhaps. Is that we often, or maybe just me, we forget the complete work that Jesus did for us. I mean, isn't that why at times we have work that we want to do for ourselves? A lot of times we think that we can save ourselves. If I just work hard enough, if I just do enough, then God would actually save me. But brothers and sisters, this is not acceptable to God. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one whose body is prepared as an offering to satisfy the wrath of God and sanctify us. Here's what we think. If I just do this, then God would accept me. Or perhaps I think, if I just didn't do this, then God would accept me. I think to fully understand the gospel, we need to understand that he has covered over that, whatever it is. And the thing I know about people is that people struggle with things that they remember, things that they have done, and they, they bother them. The fact that you think about them on occasion, it bothers you. But here is the reality. When we think of whether it's persecution or the difficulties of this life or the difficulty of dealing with the struggle of our past life, the past man, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us in order to realize and recognize that it has been covered by Jesus completely for the once and all sacrifice of Jesus so that we get to the point where we don't look back and say, if I just didn't do this, then God would accept me. Listen to the scriptures in light of that just one more time, starting in verse 5. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then why do we keep trying to figure out a way to sacrifice to God other than the sacrifice of Jesus himself? In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and the burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus has done the will of the Father. That is what he has done and come to die for us so that he would sanctify us in verse 10. And by the, that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, referring to the Old Testament method, referring to the work that they had to do, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Um, this is the third thing that we need to see, who Jesus is, not only, not only who, he did, who he is, but what he did. Number three, that Christ, off, uh, he's, he is has, he has the offering of the complete work and rested. Christ's offering is the finished work. It's complete, it's satisfied, and he took his seat. In the the imagery of the Old Testament, to take your seat was to rest. In other words, Jesus has completely finished that work. Starting in verse 12, it says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified brothers and sisters you are sanctified if you have put your trust in jesus christ you are sanctified you are made clean why do you wrestle with whether or not you are clean when you have been made clean why do, you, why do you have all the shame or regret of the things that you have done when Jesus has made you clean and satisfied the wrath of God when he has cleansed you and makes you clean? This is what we have to know. This is who he is. This is what he has done. He, Christ has finished the work of, of the Father, and he sits and rests because it is done once and for all. He is the only one that can perfect us and sanctify us. Number four, this is the final What? christ blots out our sin completely christ blots out our sin completely look at the rest of what what it says here uh, starting in verse 15. and the holy spirit also bears witness here's the triunity of god coming out in this in the book of hebrews in chapter one we we have we have god and and all the rest of the chapters we have a reference to who jesus is and now we he is highlighting the holy spirit and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, saying, for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them all those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus is not going to be sacrificed anymore. There is a, it is once for all, it is finished, it is done, and he has applied it to his saints. If Jesus, if God remembers our sin no more, then why do we suffer in the way of remembering what we have done? Now I realize I'm not addressing the persecutions you face, but there's the difficulties, the struggles, and the sufferings that we face in this life. And the difficulties. And sometimes those difficulties are remembering what we have done. Or perhaps looking at others and remembering what they have done. So when we think or hear of something that happens in the world. Or even, God forbid, in the local church and someone sins. And we think to ourselves, I would never do that particular thing. I don't know if we totally understand the, the gospel at that point. Because what the word of God says, it says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Church, brothers and sisters, shame is dealt with. Why do you feel shame? Now, there's other issues related to that. Because you might be here today and you might be struggling with, I, no, I do feel shame. I, I do have a hard time remembering. And, and I, what you don't want to, you're not hearing from me is hearing me say, well, just try harder and then that will go away. See, that, that particular issue will be dealt with and healed as you are in Christian community with us. It takes fellow brothers and sisters to be going over the word of God together. And in community, God provides healing. God, God does things in community. By the way, that's why we do branch groups. We want every Christian in Christian community. We want you there because you're going to be reading from some scripture. You're going to be praying for each other. You're going to be listening together. You're going to be walking through life together. And confession will happen at times. People will be repenting at times. And people will just need help and say, I don't know what to do. Why do I struggle with this guilt and this shame? It won't go away. And you know what? It might be a a really long journey for you. So I don't want you to blame God or be angry at God when it is just uh, years in the making of God dealing with it. Because here's the reality, guys, we live in a world that is broken because of sin. That means physically we're broken, emotionally we're broken, there's brokenness. Like, just look around, just, just sit by yourself and quiet, and you will discover how broken you are. It's like, whoa, why do I keep remembering this? Like, oh, man, I'm just trying to go to sleep. Oh, here comes a bad thought. Like, like why, why does that, like, it happens because of the brokenness and weakness and, and sin, But but remember what Jesus has done for us, that he has blotted out our sin. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is the forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Because Christ has paid for it once for all. It is done. When you struggle with these things, what you have to remind yourself of is this. Christ paid for it. It is done. That's what you should do, practically speaking. So brothers and sisters, in light of that truth, this is we wanted to see first who and what Jesus has done because next week we will see what we ought to do as we go through the rest of the passage in, in chapter 10. There'll be this really practical section of what to do in light of not turning away from Jesus because of the difficulties and the sufferings and the persecutions that happen in the lives of brothers and sisters. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us like this, like real, this is a really short ex- explanation of what we're talking about even though it's like super long. That's really what the book of Hebrews is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we... Father, we thank you for Christ and what he has done for us, uh, for who he is, and the dealing with sin on the cross for us. And we ask for your help, Father. Father, um, for anyone here struggling with shame or guilt or whatever it is, or looking at others and, and saying, I would never do what they did, Father, may we all remember the work of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins for us. In Jesus' name, amen.